Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Elaine Ferry. Elaine is the founder and director of Elaine's Travel Company, an independent travel agent based in Marlborough. Elaine, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, Elaine. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish initially your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside and just look at that in isolation for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Um, I think a leader should be a person who leads or commands maybe a group, organisation or a country. Um, That's what it would mean to me. Um, somebody would lead, you know, those those sort of things. Yeah. And how would you describe your own personal leadership style in the context of the business? Um, I would say that we're very quite laid back, being an independent mm. um, um, trader um, on the high street. We have a very laid back approach, um, which people like, a very laid back, friendly approach. Um, and we're here to assist clients with all their um, travel needs. Um, and, whether it be small, large, whatever they require, we're here to assist them through the whole process um, from start to finish. And thinking about now the fact that we're going through one of the greatest learning curves for business, I think it's fair to say in the shape of the year, the COVID-19 pandemic, no less, it's had a tremendous impact on the travel industry. So how has it been for you adapting as an independent agency to the challenges that it has brought about from a leadership point of view? Um, well, obviously, initially, when we were all shut down, that was very difficult because we um, worked very manual in our office. So we literally had to split the office into two and we had to take everything home. And our first priority was obviously getting all our clients home. That was number one because we had clients all over the country um, and all over the world that we had to get back home. So that was number one priority. So obviously, as you can imagine, we had people going the following day, the following week, the following month. But obviously, to begin with, we just had dealt with everybody um, in the coming weeks. And within two weeks, we managed to get everybody home. So that was the first uh, priority. And then since then, we've been dealing on a weekly basis. Everybody that's departing in the next week, we have to have to check the latest FCO advice, uh, which is what we have to abide by. And if you cannot travel to a country like uh, to begin with, it was only certain countries we couldn't go to. And then once it all shut down, you couldn't go anywhere. That was a real issue for us because obviously we couldn't do anything. All we could do is actually deal with our clients that were going in the coming days, weeks and months and assist them with rebooking, refunding. Um, And that was hard. That was hard. I mean, you know, I've been in the industry 34 years now and I would say it's probably the hardest thing I've had to to deal with, um, certainly. And we're such a resilient industry. We've dealt with all sorts of things. Anything that happens in the world affects our industry. But this totally grounded us. This was worse than the ash cloud, because at least with the ash cloud, we knew it was only two to three weeks. This is still ongoing. And we just, you know, we're only seeing the light at the end of the tunnel now. That's absolutely right. And um, thinking of sort of the uh, the guidelines that have been in place uh, throughout the pandemic thus far, there's been a great deal of debate about just how clear those have been. Of course, the government has intervened with various measures to protect businesses, such as, of course, the... Um, government job retention scheme which has seen millions of workers furloughed the small business loans as well as another thing but 
as for the guidelines for businesses that have stayed open and have begun to reopen and will continue to do so in the coming weeks and months, there's been a great deal of debate about just how transparent all of that has been. For you, Elaine, have you been satisfied throughout this pandemic that you've known exactly what's been expected of you to continue to work in a safe way? Yes, I think the, the guidelines that we've certainly um, we've certainly gone online and we've abided by everything that the government, the FCO and all our governing bodies within the industry have laid down for us. So, um, you know, at the moment, we from the 15th of June, we were allowed to reopen on the high street, which we did. Uh, we've got all our safety screens up. We've got all our, you know, social distancing and um, all our hygiene methods in place. So all of that is uh, fairly straightforward. Um, so we've we've abided by all of that. Um, the only thing I would say is, obviously, from a director point of view, we weren't helped with the furlough scheme because we had to continue to work. So we were um, obviously having to sort of look after our clients. So therefore, we weren't able to furlough ourselves. So obviously, from a personal point of view, you know, we haven't received any money at all since February. So we don't we're not getting any income at the moment. So whilst we're still continuing to do that until we get a, a, a huge impact of bookings, we are still, you know, out of pocket. So we're sitting in our um, high street shop, not earning anything at the moment. So that's the only thing that we haven't had. We did, um, on the positive side, we, we did manage to um, qualify for the small business grant. But in an area, in such an affluent area of Marlborough, mm. it's not going to cover our rent for more than a couple of months. So, you know, we're now looking now seriously at how we move forward, uh, looking at future loans. Obviously, we're hoping now that business will pick up, um, but it is slow off the ground because there are still lots of entry requirements that are required to enter a country. It's all very well lifting the FCO advice, but, and you know, it's all been in the media. They've lifted like 70 countries, but when you bring it down, there's only about four or five countries you can actually go to without any restrictions. So it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Mm, it is quite difficult. And there's um, still um, a great deal of um, uncertainty out there. There's not exactly a clear route forward quite as of yet for the uh, for the travel industry. Um, before we think about what the future is going to, uh, to bring with it, if we reflect on the pandemic experience thus far and that experience of managing a uh, crisis such as this, would you say, Elaine, that there is anything that you've actually learned from this period and maybe can take as any sort of positive? Um, well, I suppose the thing I've learned is, um, particularly about myself, is how patient I've had to be. Um, because, you know, without the patience, you certainly wouldn't have been able to continue. Um, so personally, I think, you know, I'm quite proud of how patient we've been and how sort of resilient we've been with clients that have been hounding us and been quite actually quite abusive at times because they want their refund, and rightly so. They're due their refund legally. But, you know, we've still had to be on the front line of taking a lot of this abuse on a daily basis. Um, and sometimes I've just felt that, you know what, is it worth just shutting the door and going home, to be honest? But, you know, no. If this is an industry I love, and I've been doing it 34 years, and I'm not giving up. And, you know what, I'm passionate about the industry, and I'm passionate about travel. And I certainly want to go away again. So when all this is over... As I say, everybody's going to want a holiday. 
I think you're absolutely right in saying that for sure. And um, interestingly, during this uh, period, and I suppose when you have a business, even a small business where there is some kind of hierarchical ladder, I mean, the natural thing for an employee to do when they need a little bit of reassurance and direction at a time like this is to look at those above them, their managers, their executives for that direction. However, when you're at the top of the tree and running a business yourself, sometimes it can feel like a bit of a lonely place in the sense that people are looking to you for reassurance. The information's not always there to try and keep those channels open and there's nowhere of course for you to look up to because there's nobody else above you so in your position Elaine just how has it been in terms of drawing inspiration where have you found that little bit of reassurance and direction from when you've needed it I think I've just gone into my inner self and just thought you know what it cannot get any worse it has to get better I'm of a positive person my glass is always half full not half empty and I've had a lot of support from my friends and family um, work colleagues that we've had to furlough um, saying, do you know what, Elaine, if anybody is going to get through this, you are. And, you know, that's a really lovely thing to hear. And I've had such support from my clients I've dealt with for over 30 years. You know, since we've been open, we've had lots of people coming in saying, oh, I'm glad to see you here, flowers, cards. So, do you know what, it's, we're, we're in a lucky position, really, um, to say that we've just got lovely, lovely clients. And, you know, I'm very positive that we'll come out of this. I have to be. I can't mm. see any other, um, you know, any other resolution, really. We have to be. People will always want to travel. People have that passion for travel. So I feel, do you know what, just keep going. Just keep going. It will only get better. It will only get better. So it's just having a positivity. And, you know, we have our low moments. Of course we do. Everybody mm. does. Um, but that's when you, you look around you for support and help that you need. And, and we've been fortunate enough to have that as a company and as a person, I've been fortunate enough to have that. Mm. And thinking about um, the experience that you've had uh, during this time and also pre-pandemic and uh, running uh, your own business, Elaine, if you had to give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start out in the business world and was maybe embarking on their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them? I would say, yeah, go for it. It can't last forever. This is an amazing industry to be in. Um, you know, depending on whether you um, want your own agency, you want to work for the airline, you want to work for a tour operator or a representative, there are so many choices. And people that go into travel, you know, may not stay in one position too long. They might move around and see, you know, let's see what I fancy. Um, and, you know, and also another thing, when people leave the industry, if they have a baby, leave the industry, they might do something else. They always want to come back to travel. All of my friends that have left the industry have come back within... 18 months because they love the industry the people in the industry were all of a laid back happy positive bunch and I think you know who would not want to be part of that sort of industry I can completely understand where you're coming from um, Elaine and thinking about now what the future might hold for yourself for the sector and for your own business in the next sort of 12 to 18 months as we sort of embrace the challenges of the year the new normal what do you envision on the horizon for you for the sector and what do you really hope to achieve? Um, well, I'm hoping to try and get back a lot of the business. I mean, we're getting um, daily inquiries at the moment, which is really positive. Everybody that I've had booked in the coming months, we're getting rebooked for next year. So definitely next year is going to be a big year. And, you know, already we're finding things that are getting fully booked up for sort of like the, the busy times of year, like half term week, Easter, school holidays. So we're finding, you know, the vacancies 
you know, are reducing as we speak. So moving forward, I'm positive that next year will be a very good year for our industry. And for me, I'm hoping to try and achieve some of the, um, you know, booking figures and um, bookings that we did certainly last year. That is an aim. Um, it may not, it may be an extreme aim, um, but, you know, let's go for it. Let's we try, we don't know. And I think having the positivity, if we can generate more positivity into our clients and people that want to travel, then, you know, people will, will be happy. I have to say, Elaine, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today to discuss uh, some of these issues. And let's certainly hope that there's going to be some positive news to share on the uh, horizon. And I think, you know, given just how informative it's been thrashing uh, this um, information out today, it would be great to catch up in the future and have you back on the programme just to see how those hopes of yours are being borne out and just assess at what point the industry is at. Because there are a great many variables still in this, including, of course, the potential for a second spike of COVID, of course. So let's just hope that the trajectory from now is just going to be upward and nothing else. I'd absolutely love to do that. That would be absolutely brilliant. And I'd love to show you how well we're going to be doing in the future. And that'd be fabulous to to update you at any time. So, yeah, thanks again for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Elaine. Do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the meantime. And um, as I say, let's hope it's going to be a real positive future. Um, I was speaking today to Elaine Ferry, founder and director of Elaine's Travel Company in Marlborough. And coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most Notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Uh, We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup Final, Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did... Uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time mm. being stuck between the two sports and I think uh, for those that uh, don't know there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer but um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated no matter what form that comes in when you were at West Ham uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach. 
or potentially, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quote I always mention when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach, as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, w- would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looks upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure... When you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. 
he was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be, who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Grees in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think... Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were 
a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. It's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and say, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you were a young man when this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually 
begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I think probably it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And, and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader, um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to. Uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team, if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the, 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they they are not doing so well he's the best example of management I think we've seen we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Green was, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially 
um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at that, so many, many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good, good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. They, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those ca- those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. It, we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude uh, alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is showed. team. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-minded uh, single dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.